Yeah, I, I, I know that some of what I'm saying is challenging. I'm quite aware of that. Um, I, I will say that what I have said in the first session this morning about what we're to pray for for our children and how we're to teach our children is probably the most controversial thing I ever say in any setting. The the thing I say to which I get most resistance, most demands for clarification, explanation. Um, But, but, um, please do feel free to ask your questions um, in our Q&A time at the end. Um, I won't be at all offended if you passionately disagree with me. You know, I spent many years of my life working in Libri where the ground rule was ask any question you like. You know, we're free to express any question, to raise any problem, any disagreement, any doubt, because we're concerned with the truth of what God's Word teaches. So, so please do feel free to ask your questions. So if you're saying, but, but no, I, I can't do that, I don't want to do that, but what about this passage, what about that? Um, please don't hesitate to ask your questions. I know one of the most obvious questions that immediately comes to mind is, but what about those passages in 2 Corinthians 6 and 7 where Paul says, what fellowship has light with darkness? I'm sure some of you thought about those as I was saying what I did. Some of you have been talking about them in the break. Uh, Well, I, I, I will tell you that in my evangelism class at the seminary, the students have an oral exam at the end of the class, and that's one of the questions. Many believers raise Paul's words in 2 Corinthians, what fellowship has light with darkness, in opposition to what I am teaching. What is the passage actually about And is it teaching something opposite to what I've been teaching this morning? Uh, It actually isn't. But if you want to ask about that, please feel free to. But uh, I take that bull by the horns in my class, and, uh, and my students are all required to be able to answer that question because it will be the most common objection to uh, what I'm trying to teach. But I know it's challenging, and uh, I know the world is a, is a difficult place. But, uh, and I will say simply, of course, it crucified Jesus. So it isn't an easy or a cost-free thing to follow Christ into the world with the message of reconciliation as ambassadors of reconciliation. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your beautiful gospel. We thank you for the accounts of Jesus. And we pray that we may learn as we look at a second of these Be with us now, for Jesus' sake, for his glory, and for your kingdom here in this part of the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, our second example uh, of Jesus being in the world, our second impossible convert. I'm sure all of you have family members and friends and People you know in the community who think are impossible converts. I have some people like that in my life. And uh, these accounts in the Gospels are tremendously encouraging to us of what God is able to do. He's able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or imagine in terms of redeeming enemies. Redeeming people who appear to have had no desire whatsoever to have anything to do with him. So here, John chapter 4, and here is the text, again from the ESV. Now, when Jesus learned 
that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying, I have no husband, for you've had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone bought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, 
One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Amen. Here's a very early painting uh, of the scene of Jesus uh, and uh, the Samaritan woman. A story I'm sure you're all familiar with. Now, as we think about Jesus' three years of ministry, just three years, he spent most of his adult life, we must assume, as a carpenter, probably also doing some work as a fisherman, right there living on the Sea of Galilee, but just three years his ministry of going out and proclaiming the gospel. And as you read the gospels, you see that almost all of that time, the the vast majority of those three years, is spent among the Jews. And Jesus says on one occasion, on several occasions, I was sent to the lost sheep of Israel. He came to his own, to his own people, the people of Israel. But in fact, in the Gospels, there are quite a few stories, quite a few examples of Jesus going beyond Israel, of showing in his own life and in the people to whom he spoke what his long-term goal is. Yes, he spent three years primarily among the Jews, but his long-term goal, of course, is that he is the Savior of the world. And that's how this passage ends. And here in this chapter of John, John chapter 4, we read this story of Jesus going outside the Jews, going to someone else, going to a Samaritan. And there are actually quite a few other stories in the Gospels as well, where you see Jesus with Gentiles, with Romans, uh, with uh, other, with Canaanites, like the Syrophoenician woman. And these stories where Jesus is going beyond Israel show his purpose, of coming into the world for the whole world. For the Jews, yes, but not only for them, for Samaria and for the ends of the earth. Because he is indeed the savior of the world. And here we are, many, many thousands of miles away from from Samaria, from Judea, and here is this life church growing and reaching out into the community. Because we also have come to believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world. Now, our text describes for us a brief meeting, though actually it's quite lengthy. Uh, And one of the remarkable things about this passage is that it's probably the longest account in any of the four Gospels of an encounter between Jesus and and one other person. Probably the longest conversation recorded in the Gospels between Jesus and another person. I've not done the verse count, but this is a lengthy passage. It takes a while to read it, uh, this whole chapter of John 4. And that's remarkable given who it is that Jesus is with on this particular occasion. So the text describes... Their initial meeting, Jesus and the Samaritan woman, and what appears to be, at first sight, a a chance encounter. Uh, There are no chances, of course, but what appears that way, just this encounter by the well in the heat of the day, and the conversation that ensues from that encounter leads Jesus and the disciples to end up staying in this little village of Sychar, 
for two more days. And as a consequence, many of the villagers coming to faith in Christ. And the next slide here has the earliest uh, presentation we have of this scene in artistic form. This is from the catacombs in Rome uh, of the Samaritan uh, woman. In fact, in many of the early accounts, she's presented as, as dark-skinned, which is uh, uh, quite possible from the people who lived, who the Assyrians had settled uh, in that uh, area uh, at uh, the time. Now, is it a chance encounter? Of course, it's not. Uh, Jesus stops to rest from his journey. This is a fairly lengthy journey. And they're walking in the middle of the day. And there at the well, he meets this woman. Does, is this chance? Is this just one of those happenstance things? Uh, does the woman just happen to be at the well uh, when Jesus comes? No, of course not. So Jesus tells us in this passage that his food, when he says, He has food to eat that disciples know nothing about. That his food is to do the will of his Father and to accomplish his work. And that's, of course, what Jesus is doing. In fact, many times in John's Gospel, Jesus will say something like this. Every word I say is exactly what the Father wants me to say. Everything I do is not my own will, but what the Father desires for me to do. So here on this day, Jesus is doing what the Father wants him to do. He is doing the Father's work. That was who he was from childhood. Uh, Most of us in this room have children, and our children don't do, even when they're pretty good, they don't do exactly what we want. But Jesus tells us, from his childhood, that he was committed to doing his father's work. That's what he said to Mary and Joseph when they came back and found him in the temple when he was 12 years old. Didn't you understand? I had to be doing my father's work. I had to be about his business. That's Jesus' whole life. Uh, And he did that perfectly all through his life. Amazing to think about how different that is from your life or my life. Uh, I've never spent a day doing exactly what my heavenly father wanted me to do, and neither have you. But that was Jesus every moment. And so here he is, meeting this woman at the well on this particular day, in the heat of the day, because that's where the father wants him to be. And this is the person the father wants him to be speaking to, and this is the conversation that the father desires that he should have. Jesus, of course, is the pattern for our life. He is our pattern for mission, for evangelism. Uh, We, as we said in the first session, have been sent into the world just as he was. The Father sent him, Jesus sends us. And our lives, like his, are not happenstance. Uh, When we meet people, You know, it's not an accident. I was in New Zealand about three weeks ago uh, serving one of our graduates there who's planting a church in the city of Auckland. And I flew down to Christchurch because in the last year I came to discover that I have a sister, 10 years older than me, who I didn't even know existed, um, a half-sister. I didn't know she existed till a year ago, and that's uh, an amazing thing. Uh, and I went down to Christchurch to meet her. She lives in New Zealand. And, uh, and one of our other graduates, some Covenant, is a pastor in the city of Christchurch. And when I knew I had a sister there, I contacted him. He's a lovely, lovely young fellow and his wife. And uh, they're from Alabama. And there they are in New Zealand, far away. And uh, I said, Rusty, I have a sister in Christchurch. Any chance you could get to meet her? Well... He is a wonderful young man, and they've had her over maybe a dozen times and uh, for meals. And, uh, and the Lord is 
touching her heart, which is uh, just wonderful. You know, none of these things are happenstance. Uh, you know, the Lord has his hand. But in the airport in Christchurch, on the way back to Auckland, my plane was delayed uh, by about, for about 10 hours by fog, which is extremely unusual there. And I was sitting in the airport at the one place where I could plug my computer in and working. There were only like two power two places for plugs in the, that I could find anywhere in the airport. And so opposite was sitting me this, these young two guys, and the, they were listening to a lecture on the Internet, on their computer. And it was a lecture about the origins and ultimate death of the universe. And it was absolutely fascinating. And, uh, you know, from my perspective, this was happen chance happenstance, and from there's an entirely chance encounter, but, but the Lord has his hand over our lives. And when we meet people, it's because that's what the Lord desires for us. And the question is, are we going to be obedient to him? And finally, I had to say to these guys, that is a very interesting lecture. I can't help but listen to it. Our computers are about that far apart in this tiny space you know, back to back. And uh, I'm trying to work on something and I'm hearing this lecture. And so we ended up having a wonderful discussion. And uh, I pray for them as I think uh, about them. But our lives, just like Jesus' life, our lives are a series of divine appointments. This text says Jesus had to go through Samaria. And he had to go because that is what the Father wanted him to do that day, to go through Samaria and to meet this woman. Uh, And here is a map which will show us where Jesus is going. He, this, I don't think this is going to work, but you can see Jerusalem there, uh, down south, just to the end, end, edge, left edge of the Dead Sea. There it is up in the hills. And Jesus has walked all the way from Jerusalem up to Jacob's well in the center of Samaria. And they were on their way up to Galilee uh, in the north. So that's where Jesus is going on this particular day. And that would be a good, hot, dusty, tiring walk. And Jesus is tired, and so he rests at the well there in the middle of the day while his disciples go into the village of Sychar to get food. And the text says, now he had to go through Samaria. Very interesting little word there, had. Why does Jesus have to go through Samaria? Well, if you look back at that, at that picture, whoops, you look back at that picture, you say, well, obviously he has to go through Samaria. It's between Judea and Galilee. So, of course, he has to go through Samaria. Well, actually, no. Um, The Jews only ever walked through Samaria if there was some urgent reason why they had to go in a hurry. Jesus isn't in a hurry. You know, he has this long encounter with this woman and then he stays in this village for two days. So he's not on urgent business in terms of getting through Samaria. His urgency is meeting this woman and staying in this village. But for the Jews of Jesus' day, there were three ways whereby they could go from Jerusalem, from Judea, up to Galilee. They could go inland, And again, here you see it. They could go inland to the Jordan River, go to the east, and there was a river road. And if they did that, it would avoid Samaria. Or they could go westward out to the coast, and there was a coastal road. And so they would avoid going through Samaria. But there was a third road which went through the very heart of Samaria. And Jews usually avoided it. But that is the way Jesus chooses to go. And here's a very detailed map. You can just about perhaps see the village of Sychar there, Jacob's Well, and Mount Gerizim 
uh, off to the west from Jacob's well. So Jesus and the woman would have been able to see Mount Gerizim uh, right there. And there's Galilee up in the north. So Jesus takes the third route, the most direct route through Samaria. In Jesus' day, the Jews only went on that third route if they were constrained to do so. They tried to avoid all contact with the Samaritans. Uh, Basically, uh, one of their laws said, if you meet a Samaritan on the road, if even his shadow touches your shadow, you will be polluted by him. They regarded the Samaritans as so unclean, so unclean holy. And so they wouldn't go through Samaria. They'd have to keep walking into the ditch, basically, if it was a sunny day, which it mostly is there. So so they just avoided it. But Jesus has compelling reasons to go through Samaria, and his compelling reasons are obviously to meet this woman. And here's another painting of the scene. I, I love these medieval paintings and onwards, because they almost all set them in their own setting. You know, this isn't this isn't Samaria. This is Italy in the 14th century, and uh, and that's exactly right, of course, because uh, and this is an Italian well because the painter knows perfectly well it didn't look like that. He's saying this story is for us, uh, as he puts it into his uh, into his own situation. Now, now, who is this person that Jesus feels so constrained to meet? that he takes this route that the Jews didn't normally take. Well, she is fundamentally an outcast, and there are a whole series of problems here from the perspective of Jesus as a Jewish teacher of his day. If, as my Israeli guide uh, said to me uh, last November in our coach as we went around the land, Jesus was a good Jewish boy uh, observing all the laws of Judaism at the time, Um, he certainly wouldn't have been there on this day uh, and because he would have had all kinds of problems. And the first problem Jesus would have had if he had been a good Jewish boy of his day was that this woman was a member of the wrong race. The Samaritans racially were of mixed race and the Jews of Jesus' day basically called them half-breeds, mongrels. The Gentiles were dogs, the Samaritans were mongrels. That's how they thought of them. Partially, they were descended from the ten northern tribes, the kingdom of Israel with its capital, Samaria, in the Old Testament after the time of Solomon, uh, the kingdom of Israel, And you remember that that kingdom, if you remember your Old Testament history, became idolatrous earlier even than Judah and perpetually disobedient to God. And so they were taken into captivity by the Assyrians and their kingdom basically came to an end. And the Assyrians, in their policy of divide and conquer, took the people of those ten northern tribes and they settled them in the far reaches of their empire in present-day Iraq and Iran and all around that area. And then they brought other peoples from other parts of their empire and settled them in Samaria because people who are moved like that don't rise up and rebel against you. That's the way they kept peace in their empire, just moving people around, hundreds of thousands of them, so nobody's at home Nobody's comfortable. Nobody is going to rebel. They're just going to be submissive. So that's, that is the situation here. Here is a person of the wrong race, and they're in exile. Of course, many of the Jews intermarried with the people among whom they were settled, many of those Israelites from the ten northern tribes. Not Jews, I should say, but the, the northern tribes, the Israelites married in exile, and There's nothing wrong with that. Think of the book of Esther, which gives the account of Esther becoming one of the wives, the chief wife of of the emperor of Persia, uh, of present-day Iran. She is 
marrying with these people among whom they are settled. Obviously, many returned to Samaria after the exile was over. Others, some remained in Samaria when Israel was defeated. But in both settings, both in exile and there in Samaria, they intermarried with other peoples. Uh, And the Jewish view in Jesus' day was that the Samaritans had polluted the pure blood of the patriarchs with all this intermarriage with these other people. And so they despised them for that reason. Uh, They are not racially pure. Of course, God is utterly uninterested in racial purity. There are three women whose names are mentioned in the genealogy of Christ. And they are all people who are not Israelites, all three of them. God has delighted to make women like Ruth, the Moabites, we'll talk about her tomorrow morning, into one of the ancestors of Jesus Christ. God is utterly uninterested in racial purity, and so was Jesus. He wasn't racially pure himself. That brings us to the second problem, as well as race, is the problem of her religion, which was also an offense to the Jews of Jesus' day. Samaritan religion was mixed. It was a blend of the worship of God, of the true God, creator and the Lord God of Israel, together with the pagan idolatry of the peoples from around Babylon who had been settled in Samaria. So Samaritan religion is a mix, a mix of the truth and paganism. The Samaritans had part of the Old Testament. They had just the books of Moses, the first five books of the Bible. And They built a temple in which to worship God. They built their temple on Mount Gerizim, just there off to the west of the well and of the village of Sychar. And they taught that Mount Gerizim is the proper place to worship God, not Jerusalem. The Jews were so outraged by this that they had actually fought a war against the Samaritans because they saw their temple as such a blasphemy, and they defeated them and burnt the temple to the ground. They burnt the temple as a place of abominable sacrilege, and that was 160 years or so before this occasion when Jesus is is talking to this woman. As they talk, they will have presumably been able to see the ruins of the temple uh, on the mountain across from them as they talk. So the Jews despised the Samaritans as heretics. Their theology is confused. And their worship is not faithful to everything that God teaches in his word. And so from the Jewish perspective in Jesus' day, the Samaritan religion was worse than paganism because it was a mixture of syncretism if we want to try to think of a parallel today, for many Christians, many Christians regard Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons as worse than anybody else and more difficult to reach because of the confusion. There are elements of the truth mixed together with falsehood. And that creates, does indeed create some particular challenges. But many Christian believers will have nothing at all to do with Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. And if they come to the door, we'll just slam the door in their face. Please don't do that. Jesus is setting us a rather different example here uh, in this passage. That brings us to a third problem, the problem of her gender. Now, Half of you will say, uh, that shouldn't be a problem. I hope all of you will say, that shouldn't be a problem. I hope there isn't a man here who is like Jesus' male contemporaries who regarded women as inferior. 
But in Jesus' day, Jewish rabbis, Jewish teachers, did not have women disciples. Uh, They thought that women weren't capable uh, of really learning the word of God faithfully. Uh, Women's testimonies weren't regarded as trustworthy, so women could not be witnesses in a court of law. Basically, they were regarded as irrational, emotional, untrustworthy. It is said of the Jews of the New Testament period that the Pharisees had a prayer. Thank you, God, that I'm not a Gentile but a Jew, that I'm not a slave but free, that I'm not a woman but a man. And it's that prayer that the Apostle Paul turns on his head in Galatians 3 when he is converted from his Pharisaical background. In Christ there is No Jew or Greek, no slave or free, no male or female. Obviously, uh, it's not a problem for Jesus that she is a woman. It may have been a problem for his fellow teachers of God's word in his day, but it wasn't a problem for him. He is the second person of the Godhead. He is the eternal God the eternal word who has created women in his likeness. Who better than Jesus to show by his example that women are designed and created by him as the full equals of men. That's how Jesus treats women, as the equals of men. That every woman in this world is fully the representative and bearer of God's image, the crown of creation, crowned with the glory and honor of being like God with everything in the world under your feet. Jesus, as you read through the Gospels, we see him loving to honor women. He asks them to bear witness to him as he does to this woman. He sends her into the village to fetch her husband. We'll talk about that in a minute. But think of Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. They are the first witnesses to the resurrection. This is not an accident. It's not a chance event that the first two people to see the empty tomb and to realize that Jesus has raised from the dead and to go to tell the apostles that Christ is raised, are women. Because Jesus trusts the witness of women. And on this particular day, Jesus is eager to meet this woman, who is going to be his wedge, his ambassador of reconciliation, into her community. That's going to be the hard work. And he talks about that when he talks to the disciples. Others have done the hard work, You can enter into the fruits of their labor. Jesus is talking about his hard work in breaking through the barrier to this community by his conversation with this woman. And so she becomes the, if you like, the wedge of the gospel, the arrowhead of the gospel into her community. Jesus delights in calling her and other women to faith and discipleship and to be his ambassadors. This brings us to the fourth problem. We've got race, religion, gender, and uh, her sin, of course. And uh, we're all sinners, but we think, all of us, inappropriately, before God, we think of some sins as being worse than others. The the scripture says to us, if we have disobeyed God's law at any point, we're guilty of the whole lot. That's true of all of us. So Zacchaeus and this woman are not worse sinners than you or me or anybody else in her community. But certainly in her community, her sin and life was not considered as respectable, and it certainly wasn't secret. Everybody in the community knows that she is a sinner. She has been married five times, and now she's living with a man without any marriage contract. Uh, In both 
both among the Samaritans and among the Jews, at this time in history, it was very easy for men to get divorced, much harder for women. That's still true in many cultures in the world today. Men can put away women for whatever reason they choose. That was, that was true in Jesus' day in, among the Jews and among the Samaritans. So the woman didn't make the breakfast according to his liking or whatever else, he could divorce her. If he found fault with her for any reason, that was the view of the liberal wing of Phariseeism at Jesus' time. She could be divorced. So here's this woman. She's been put away by five men, one after each other. And she's now in a situation where fundamentally she will be a moral outcast in her own community. It's a cultural setting where the woman is always regarded as the one at fault. So when a marriage breaks down, it's the woman's fault. So a woman who has been divorced five times, like her will be a person despised by everybody in her community. And she's now reached the point where, in order for a man to have her in his bed, he doesn't have to marry her. She is a woman who has basically been passed from man to man. She will be scorned and hated by other women in her community because they will see her as a threat to their own marriages. And this is almost certainly why she is at the well alone in the middle of the day. Women would go to the well early in the morning when it's cool, or in the evening when it's begun to get cool again, and they would go together. It's a time of community. It's a time for fellowship. It's a time to talk and catch up with your friends, with your neighbors. But she is there by herself in the middle of the day because she is an outcast in her own village. Here's a wonderful painting by Veronese from 1550. And again, this is a nice Italian scene, um, that uh, European scene from that period, uh, which and Jesus and the woman there uh, together. Jesus, of course, described in this passage in all kinds of wonderful ways. Uh, If you wanted to preach a series of sermons on Jesus, he describes himself as the gift of God, the one who gives living water as a prophet, uh, one greater than the patriarch Jacob, the Messiah, the Christ, the one who will explain everything to us. Uh, I am he. He says, the one who can tell us everything we ever did, and the Savior of the world, just in this passage. That is, Jesus, the friend of this outcast woman. Now, the question for us is, how does Jesus, how does the Son of God, the creator of the universe, the one who is perfectly holy, true God and true man, utterly separated from sinners, How does he relate to this person? And think of all these barriers, barriers of race, barriers of religion, barriers of gender, barriers of sin. Here, an engraving from the late 19th century by Gustave Doré from his series of of biblical illustrations. And he's made an attempt to put that in its appropriate setting uh, there. You've got the palm trees uh, in, in the background. Uh, now, as we think about what Jesus does, first of all, basically, he sets aside custom and law, just as he does with Zacchaeus. In Zacchaeus' case, he invites himself to Zacchaeus' home and, and outrages everybody not just because he's outraging social convention, but he's breaking the laws of Judaism. And the same is true here. Jesus begins his encounter with the woman by asking her for a drink of water. And not simply because he's thirsty. I mean, she's astonished by his response. 
by his, by his question, by his request. Jesus did not eat or drink from any vessel, any plate, any jug, any container touched by a Samaritan. One of the Jewish rabbis said this, he who eats the bread of the Samaritans is like one who eats the flesh of pigs. So Jesus isn't simply breaking social custom. He is offending against Jewish law. He is asking the woman, he has no vessel, and she says that to him, you have nothing to draw water with. How can you ask me for a drink? He's going to use her jug from which to drink. The jug that she has used to draw water and then will pass with her hands to him and he will drink from it. No Jew had ever requested food or drink from her in her life before. Jesus is going to drink from an unclean container she has handled. She is amazed. That's why she says, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? This is a cultural setting in which men do not talk to women who they don't know. So he's outraging every possible kind of social convention and law in having this conversation at all to address a woman like this whom he does not know is completely unacceptable socially. Jesus is outraging moral convention in this cultural setting as well as breaking Jewish law. And of course, they then have a long conversation. He addresses her as a social equal. The disciples the text tells us, are surprised. They're amazed when they come back and find Jesus talking to a woman. Again, this isn't culturally acceptable. It took them a long time to understand Jesus. They still didn't get it very well, even when he died and rose again, because his life is so utterly different from the typical pattern of life in their setting. The disciples were typical of their time, thinking of women as not social equals. Uh, And here, that's exactly how Jesus is treating her. A couple more paintings here. This one's by Strozzi. Uh, Lovely, lovely painting. And then another one. This is a, a 19th century painting by Henrik Simaratsky, beautiful, beautiful painting of these two by the well having their, having their lengthy uh, conversation uh, together. Now, Jesus outrages social convention. He breaks the law in meeting her. Secondly, he reveals his need to her. So a, a wonderful thing. Here is Jesus. He is the creator of the universe. Uh, he is the one who is the source of living water. He's also, of course, the source of all the water in the universe, in this, on this earth, of every raindrop, of the oceans, of the lakes, of the rivers, every cloud in the sky. He's the creator of the world. Though he could have asked the angels to feed him, he could have commanded water. He turns water into wine. He's perfectly capable of doing anything he wishes as the creator of the universe. But instead, he's tired and thirsty, and he asks her to give him a drink. Jesus doesn't need anything from anybody, but he chooses to be in need and to present his need to her. Again, just as with Zacchaeus, there's nothing more honoring, nothing more dignifying Jesus could possibly have done than to ask her to do something for him. A very ordinary request, but it's a very beautiful one that he asks her to give him a drink. And thirdly, thirdly, Jesus and the woman have a very lengthy discussion. 
as I said, this is the longest discussion between Jesus and another person recorded in the Gospels. It's wonderful that it is here with this woman, with this Samaritan, with this heretic. He treats her as rational and thoughtful. And of course, as her creator, he knows that she is, that she has the ability to learn and to think. This will be the first time in her life that any teacher or any man has spoken to her in such a way as somebody with whom to have a thoughtful and lengthy discussion. And it is beautiful that he does this. What did they discuss? Obviously, even though this is a long account, we have to assume that it is a summary of the discussion that took place place between them. And John gives us the central points of it. And again, we can meet this woman one day and we can get her, I'm sure she remembers every word of it. She has a perfect memory now. She remembers every word of it, but we'll hear the whole account of what they talked about. They talk about the well there, and they talk about ordinary water, and they talk about spiritual water, spiritual life, which only Jesus can give, which will fill us to overflowing forever. They talk about the patriarch Jacob, who was especially honored by the Samaritans, particularly in that area, because he was the one who gave the well to his descendants. That well, it's called Jacob's well. They talk about the proper site to worship God. Should it be Jerusalem, as the Jews said, or should it be Mount Gerizim, which the Samaritans claimed was the proper place to worship God? And they talk about the nature of true worship, what it means to worship God, and how ultimately God is going to be worshipped anywhere where people worship him in spirit and truth, not in Jerusalem or anywhere else, but all over the world. And here is a photograph of Mount Gerizim. Uh, Jesus and the woman can see that there in the background as they're having their conversation. That will be the view uh, that they will have had on this day. They also talk about the Messiah. Even though the Samaritans only had the first five books of the Bible, they expected the Messiah to come, the Christ to come. The Samaritans, in fact, called him the Taheb, the Restorer. And they based their hope of the Messiah on the passage in Deuteronomy 18, where Moses says, the Lord your God will raise up a great prophet like me, from among you, and you're going to, you're to listen to him. And that promise of the prophet was at the heart of the Samaritans' expectation of the Messiah. They also talk about the fact that salvation, salvation will be from the Jews. And the Samaritans knew that too, though they may not have liked it very much, but you know, their first five books of the Bible teach them that. They were familiar with the prophecy from Genesis 49 that the Christ will come as the lion of the tribe from Judah. And that's why Jesus can say to her with her full agreement, yes, salvation is indeed from the Jews. Now, Jesus has this wonderful lengthy discussion with her. And he is aware of the elements of truth the things that are good in her thinking, in her understanding. And that's where he focuses their discussion. Her respect for the patriarchs, her knowledge of the books of Moses, her interest in worship, her awareness of her spiritual need, her hope for the Messiah, her sense of shame about her sin. And God always has his testimonies in every person we meet. Now, there is no person you will ever meet who doesn't have some element of truth, of knowledge, of wisdom, of goodness in their life. The Apostle Paul says whatever things are lovely, whatever things are true, whatever things are admirable, whatever are praiseworthy, think about those things. 
That's one of my most basic pieces of advice to you in all your relationships with non-Christians. Follow Jesus' example. You build on what is good and true in a person's life. No matter what it is, it may be something very beautiful, very profound. When my dad, you know, I grew up in a non-Christian home, my dad had a passionate commitment to marriage and the family. He was the best husband I've ever seen in my life and the best father. He died in 1972, but he's still my model every day for how to love my wife, how to be a father. He became a Christian six weeks before he died, the age of 75. But he's still my model. And that was where I began to talk to him, his commitment to marriage and family. It may be something very simple. With my stepfather, he was a terrible man when my mother married again. An awful man in all kinds of ways. But he had one lovely thing in his life. He loved to grow flowers. That became the whole basis for our relationship and for my being able to communicate the truth to him eventually. So you start where people are, and it may take years and years Jesus' situation, it takes one day here. Lots of people who didn't become Christians when Jesus spoke to them, but later. But on this occasion, she comes to faith on this day. But Jesus begins with these elements of truth in her life, and that's where they have this lengthy, lengthy discussion. And fourthly, of course, Jesus speaks to her with wonderful gentleness and grace, even about her sin. It's very clear her sin weighs very heavily upon her. When she talks about her conversation with Jesus, he said, he told me everything I ever did. The only thing they talked about in her life was her failed marriages and her present situation. Now, it's quite clear that that's how she thought about herself. This is indeed her whole life. And the villagers refer back to it. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. We no longer believe just because of what you said, but now we've met him ourselves. But this is, this is her testimony. Here's a man who knows my heart, who knows my life. He knows everything about me. Clearly, she was a woman who became defined by her sin, by her failure. In her mind, just in, as in the mind of everybody around her, and we all tend to do this to people, we look at somebody in their particular sin and then we let, uh, we let that define who the person is completely. And we shouldn't do that. But that's what she had done, because everybody else had been doing it to her for so long. This is her whole life. She's failed at marriage. She's passed from man to man. She's living with somebody outside of marriage. But it's this knowledge of her life which Jesus communicates to her with such grace, such gentleness. She doesn't experience his words as a condemnation at all. That's the remarkable thing about it. But it leads her to the conclusion, you're the Messiah. You are a prophet. Her, his knowledge of her leads her to coming to faith in him. And when she says, I perceive you are a prophet, then Jesus tells her that he is indeed the Messiah and she puts her trust in him. And then Jesus commissions her for service. He sends her back to the town to get her husband. Of course, she doesn't go get her husband, but uh, she doesn't have one any longer. Uh, she actually goes and gets as many people as she possibly can. Uh, but Jesus commissions her, and off she goes. She bears the good news to her neighbors and brings them to meet him. 
She is the first witness to Jesus in her community, the first ambassador of reconciliation. That's who she is. Wonderful, wonderful account. And of course, her words are very successful. You know, she tells her neighbors, and she's so passionate about it. Here's a man who knows all about me. He's told me everything I've ever done. Some of them come to believe immediately. And they come to Jesus right away. Samaritans wore white clothes. I I did have a photograph, which I forgot to put up here. That's what they still wear today, Uh, white clothes. Still a few of them there in Palestine to this day. But Jesus sees them coming across the fields when he says to his disciples, do you not say yet three months to harvest? But I tell you, the fields are already white to harvest. What he's talking about, he's looking up and pointing out there to his disciples, don't you see them coming across the fields? I've already done all the hard work. Now you can enter into my labors. But that's what Jesus is doing. He's looking and seeing the Samaritans in their white robes coming across the field to talk to him. Uh, It isn't harvest yet, but this harvest, the harvest of life, uh, is happening. And so Jesus and the disciples can now labor in this community and share the truth and people will come uh, to faith. So her words, very successful. Jesus stays in the village for two more days. This apparently chance encounter with the woman ends up to this two-day visit in the community and many, many people becoming believers, coming to know that Jesus is the Savior of the world. This is one of the most successful accounts of mission recorded in any of the four Gospels. And it's fascinating because it's outside Judea. It isn't among the Jews. Many of them came to faith, but here, this is an extraordinary, fruitful time. And of course, coming back to the story with Zacchaeus, you know, Jesus and the disciples are going to be eating unclean food for those two days. There wasn't some little kosher restaurant uh, in this village. This is a Samaritan community. And so they're going to, all of them are going to be defiling themselves constantly in the eyes of Jewish law at the time. Peter must have forgotten this when he said in Cornelius' home, you know, and in Simon's home before he went there, you know, I've never eaten unclean food. Well, he did with Jesus, and uh, he just uh, conveniently forgot that. We all get stuck in our patterns, and Peter got stuck in his. I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Well, he most certainly had. Actually, those words of Peter were addressed to the Lord when he's on the roof of Simon the Tanner in Joppa. And he has this vision of unclean animals. And the voice from heaven says to him, rise and kill and eat. And he says, no, no, Lord, I'm not doing what you say. That's Peter, stubborn uh, and uh, constantly putting his foot in his mouth. Um, But, uh, and of course, not telling the truth on that occasion, he had forgotten as he rebuked the Lord for telling him to eat unclean food, that he'd spend a couple of days in Sychar doing precisely that. Finally, some lessons from Jesus, and I must finish here quickly. We are called to live the same kind of intentional life. Our lives are not happenstance. God has his hand on us whether it's meeting somebody in an airport like I did in the Christchurch airport or finding out I've got a sister who I didn't know existed who's 76 years old now. You know, these things are not happenstance. They happen within the providence of God in our lives. And he calls us to live intentional lives. Lord, here I am today, send me. Here I am today, sent into the world for you and by you. Jesus calls us to give ourselves in the world to overcoming whatever barriers there are around us. Those are barriers sometimes of race, sometimes of religion, 
not usually of gender in our cultural setting, though in many parts of the world that's still the situation, and barriers of sin. We're to, we're to give ourselves to overcome those. One of the passions God has put on my heart has been working at racial reconciliation in St. Louis. You know, Christ calls us to set aside custom, cultural custom. He's constantly doing this himself at raging social convention and setting aside rules, Christian rules. No, we're not to set aside God's commandments, but we can make up endless rules for ourselves about what music to listen to and what films to see and what books to read and what people to be with, which have nothing to do really with God's word. Jesus sets that aside as so much rubbish and he calls us to do the same. He calls us to be vulnerable, to cheerfully acknowledge our need of what non-Christians can give to us. I love to tell people that my best model of, of marriage and parenting is my parents who were not Christians when I was their child. You know, that I receive from them. Who are the non-Christians who you can receive from, who you can learn from, who you can thank for what they're giving to you? in meeting your needs. We're called to work at what are the testimonies of God in the life of a person. Whether it's their knowledge about something, just something simple like growing flowers, you know, whatever it is that is good in their life, there we can build. We're to commit ourselves to respectful discussion with anybody with anyone at all. We're called to be full of grace and gentleness with people about their moral failures. Paul says, we have no business condemning unbelievers in their sin. What business is it of mine, he says, to judge those outside the church? None at all. None at all. So we commit commit ourselves to relationships and conversations which are not critical, not judgmental, but gracious. We're to see our own sins, not other people's. And simply the Lord commissions us for service. He sends us into the world like Jesus. That is our calling. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we, we thank you for these very beautiful accounts of the life of Christ. Again, our prayer is that you will fill us with his love and you will call us to live just a little bit like him, to be a blessing to those around us. We ask it in his name and for his sake. Amen.